Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 27 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So in this episode, we're going to talk about closing, or more importantly, we're going to tackle some of the more common questions we tend to get 30 to 45 days before you close. So at this point, you're past letter of intent, you're past duking it out over retreatment, you're focused on how it's all going to work. And we're going to talk about what needs to be in place the day you close, what will hang around to be settled after close, how to let patients know, and we'll also hit on three sneaky stop signs that might hit and delay your closing. So we have a lot to cover today, but before we get going, Mr. Loretto. What's happening? Not a lot. <laughs> Just booming over here at NDP. Hey, can we get our editor, you know, that we send this off? <laughs> Let's get a little closing time music, you know, the one that, that closes down too? that bar, you know, that, that song. Time. Closing time. <laughs> Let's get that sucker on, on this episode. Episode 27 is going to rock a little like closing time music. Well, man, things are good. We have been, in the last like 30 days, Christy and I, we've been invited to speak at the Pacific Coast Society of Orthodontics. So we're going to speak at the Rocky Mountain meeting together. In January, we're going to speak at the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry together. I got the invitation to speak at the CDA. I got the invitation to speak at the AE, ADA, all in like 30 to 40 days. So it is so cool. A lot of the ASDA chapters are some of the big meetings. I sent me a really nice one yesterday about they really loved the fact of our passion for private practice dentistry. They wanted that voice to be shared with their leaders. So it's good stuff. It's good nice to be stuff. to be recognized. So if you are not tired of hearing our voice after 27 episodes, find us at one of these meetings. <laughs> find us. Find us. <laughs> no, what? things are going fantastic here too. We just, if you've worked with us recently, we've kind of onboarded some new staff and they're fantastic. Bridget and Colin and Lori and Carrie and Don and Katrina. We've got a huge staff here that we love and they're all super passionate and we just feel really blessed. As you become an owner, which you will, or you're already an owner, then you know how critical your staff is to making your whole world go around. So I have to give them props for what they A lot of high fives, a lot of love at NDP. A lot of love at NDP. (laughs) So we're going to talk about something that is real big in my world right now. We've got a lot of closings happening in the next couple weeks. And so for the last month or so, we've just been getting slammed with some of these questions. And I feel like I'm talking about the same thing over and over again. And so when we talk about the same thing over and over again, we do a podcast. So here's one of the things that I get a lot of questions on and I actually love doing is reviewing the patient letter notification that's going to go out post-closing. So this is the letter that you and the seller are going to put together that basically is the seller saying, hey, here's what's happening. It's bittersweet. I've looked long and hard. Here's who I've found. And it's your first communication as a buyer to the staff. And so that letter is unfortunately one of those things that gets lost in all the juggling of all the pieces. And so we oftentimes get a How are the patients going to know? So we have some samples and we can send those to you. But the letter we get back, I always say I like to have the seller start it, have the buyer add to it, and then let's refine it and really make it communicate the message you guys want to communicate. So there's two ways to do this. One is a letter that's only from the seller's perspective, right? It's a letter from seller to their patients. And that letter goes into why they're leaving, how long they've searched, and also gives a short bio of the buyer from the seller's perspective. Another way to do this, it's the same exact communication, just a little bit of a different way, is there's two letters in one envelope. 
One letter is, hey, I'm the seller. Here's what's happening. I've picked Mary. She's going to be fantastic. We share the same philosophy, but it doesn't go into all the details. It just kind of says, here's why I picked her and maybe a few highlights. The second letter is from the buyer and it basically is now saying, I am so excited to meet you. You know, when I first was presented this opportunity, I was so honored and so lucky. And it's been such a pleasure to work with the staff and I can't wait to meet you. And then here's a little bit about me and maybe more personal. If you've heard episode two, you know, we love some pictures on some letters too. Definitely. So pictures of you and the doctor, are you and the seller together? Pictures of you and your family, anything that kind of creates that personal connection before the patient walks through the door. We love it. Yeah, I've seen this as well, Christy, where they do the videos together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't think of their names, but he's a big guy and she's a little woman. But he took over her practice and it was just a really heartfelt message. You could see just the admiration that she's looking at him in the video with love. Like, I, you know, I can't believe I found him and it's amazing. He's looking back at her with, you know, this excitement. And that's on the homepage of their website. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was going to say is this letter goes out to patients and then it should be on your front desk where people are checking in or at the checkout. It should also be on the front page of your website, on your social media page. Definitely. Like really put it out there, put it everywhere and really let people know how happy you both are that this has happened. Another thing that we get a lot of is if it's more of a specialist, more of a referral based practice, the patients matter, but sometimes the referrals matter a heck of a lot more. And so what is your experience with referral notifications? And I know you have some special ways you like to look at these. Yeah. So you have to think about the person coming into the practice as either A, the associate, B, the person that's going to come in as a partner, mm-hmm. or C, that's going to purchase the practice outright. And I would say that the three specialties that have, I think, the most risk in the transition, or I would say the need for the biggest emphasis on the transition to the new doctor, are going to be Imperio, oral surgery, endo, and pros. It's because those specialties they have what they refer to is is something like the fab four okay they have like four big main referral sources that are sending the business it could be the super six it could be the great eight whatever those are those are the key people that are sending that specialty a lot of work and many many times that these referral base they really like that guy or that gal who's ever the specialist and so when they bring you into the equation or if you're my senior doctor listing you're bringing someone else in it's so critical that we help transition this relationship over. And so what I'm looking for here is that even if I'm the buyer and you're the senior doctor in this equation, Christy, and they really love you and they just love you, love you, and they don't really want to say anything to me, what I want to do is I want to be involved. I'm going to be the one that's assisting with that patient. I want to be the one that perhaps is walking them out to the car. I want to be the one that does the handwritten thank you. I want to be the one that's sending the email Back to the referring doctor saying that we assisted Mm -hmm. Mrs. Jones. She's in excellent shape. I will personally be calling her to see how she's doing, although you did the procedure, Christy. Mm -hmm. I will personally make sure that Susie the Front Disc sends our standard care package, Mm -hmm. which is the dozen roses that we are known for. Mm And I'm stepping myself into this relationship. Yeah. Okay. And senior doctors sometimes, well, you know, they don't want it. It's difficult for them and it's difficult for that referring doctor. So we've got to recognize that that's part of the process. We've got to just tackle it mm-hmm. and let's not be afraid here. So we like to be involved in this, either coaching the buyer or the seller, or many times in our dual representation that we're able to guide them through this process. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that sometimes people's questions are, we're like, how do I know, especially when writing a letter of intent or 
drafting of the purchase agreements and they want the seller to do these meetings and have these dinners, but like, how do I know how many, right? Like, how do I know who I need to include? And so referral reports, you know, you don't have to have the names. I know that's sensitive information, especially in the diligence process, but a referral report that says Dr. A gives me 20%, Dr. B gives me 10%. Maybe instead of eight, they have a top 12, right? Right. So we just kind of have to know how many do we care about because the requirement of a buyer to have the seller introduce them to every single referral is not realistic. No. Seller's going to balk at that. They're not going to want to do that because they could have a hundred referrals and someone sent them one patient per referral. So really have to manage that. And I think that also gives you an opportunity as a buyer to see maybe who is not referring, especially if you're from the area, you can start developing new relationships, creating your own great eight or fab four. And so that you can kind of transition those relationships over. Man, if I'm a specialist and let's just say I'm Perio, I've got a map. It's pinpointed with me where my practice is. And I know every single one of my referral sources. I know my competition. I can see who these people are. I know who's referring. I've got them listed as my A, B, and C, and D referrals. The Ds don't refer anything, but they're opportunities. A's are obviously your grade eight. And so I've got it, and I have a marketing plan of how I'm going to be following up with them, not just with you, Christy, you're making an introduction to me, the young guy, but I'm going to put myself out there as well Mm -hmm. and to make sure that not just that doctor, but that front desk and the assistants, or it could be hygienist if it's a parent, whatever. I'm going to make sure they know exactly who I am. So how many meetings do you think someone should ask for or expect, and who is taking on the cost of what could be quite a few dinners? So if I think about my grade eight referral, it's probably just one dinner. And it could be where we do a dinner with like our top four now and our top four with the next group. And so that's what I've seen as work. So two or three of my top GPs, hey, does this day work? We go into something place nice, some type of steak dinner. And basically, if I'm the associate and again, you're the owner, you pay. You're going to benefit from this by me being involved in your practice. If we're partners, we're going to split that evenly. Mm -hmm. And if I bought your practice and now we're going to dinner... I know that me, I might want to feel like you should pay because it's part of that goodwill. It's just, you can't look at that way. It's marketing after the close. And the introduction and the kind words and the attendance is what you've just purchased as part of goodwill, but the actual cost of the dinner you're taking on as a buyer. And I I agree. I think that's fair. You've got to be able to see what the numbers are in this too. You've got to recognize the value of that relationship. I mean, if I purchased an orthodontic practice and I've got one pedo that is next door and is doing a million five, I can calculate that there's probably seven hundred dollars to $800,000 of collection that a pediatric dentist is referring to the practice. This is an amazing relationship, and I am not going to mess it up, and I don't care how many dinners or how many boat trips or anything else that I need to do to secure that relationship is absolutely what I'm going to do. It could be a GP practice that a two or three or four million dollar practice with multiple doctors and they're sending hundred, $150,000 of implants or a Zendo practice. It could be a hundred canals a year. I will do whatever it takes to take care of that relationship. So yep. you have to look at it from a financial standpoint and then how many times it just depends. If it's a D relationship, it's probably just stopping up and you know saying hi and kind of working it. But for the people who are sending me business, I am doing any and everything to keep that relationship going. Absolutely. So next point I want to talk about is something that maybe you hash out early in the process, but every now and then it comes up on the back end. It comes up when we're reviewing legal documents. And that's from a seller's perspective when they're asking, do I really want to work back as an independent contractor or should I be an employee? 
in my experience, there's a discussion about it up front. We don't really pay attention. And then there's kind of a rehash and like confirmation that this is really what I want before we kind of finalize everything. And we get this question all the time and associates, sellers, everyone wants to talk about this. It's the 11th hour, last minute. I want to do this. And then my accountant just told me this. Yes, exactly. I'm finally talking about this with this. And what does this mean? So you've got some good math on why does it really matter or does it really not? Right. So the concept in people's mind is that, hey, I'll just be an independent contractor because if you're an independent contractor, I get to keep all of my tax write-offs, which from a tax planning perspective is true, but there's a couple of things to think about here. First, let's just look at the math. Then let's talk about just the legality of being an independent contractor. So the math is this, is if you look at the amount of Social Security tax that you have to pay as an employee on the first $132,900 for the year 2019, you will have to pay as an employee just over $10,000 in social security tax, $10,000, 7.65%. Well, as an owner or now as an independent contractor, you got to match that. So what you have to understand could be seller who is now going to be mm-hmm. employee. Mm-hmm. You become an independent contractor and you are going to make this hundred plus thousand dollars a year. That choice that you become independent contractor is going to cost you more than $10,000 in social security taxes if you're going to make $132,000 that calendar year. So then you've got to be a math person and say, well, wait a minute, if I got to pick up social security taxes of $10,000, I could be the employee and save $10,000. So then you got to go, okay, what tax bracket am I in? Now it starts getting a little complicated. What kind of income am I going to make this year? Maybe it was the year of the sale. Maybe I've got a lot of uh, after-tax income with this and that. You've got to know what your tax liability is because if I'm going to pick up $10,000 of expenses, social security taxes, then I got to think of my tax bracket. So my tax bracket was 30% for that year. This means I'd have to have over $33,000 of tax deductions at a 30% tax just to break even that I decided to become an independent contractor. So the point of this is that it's not just always a no-brainer to become an independent contractor and you're going to save all this money in taxes. You've got to look to see how much you're going to be able to write off to see even if this makes sense. So that's step one, does the math make sense? Yep. And then step two, which is becoming more of a relevant discussion, is the IRS has tests of are you an independent contractor or are you an employee? Legally, can you call yourself an independent contractor or can you call the person working for you an independent contractor? Or are they really an employee because of the tests they've set up? So if you Google employee versus independent contractor IRS, it will take you directly to their site. They have tests. You can kind of walk through those states. They're putting a little bit more focus on that recently. There are certain states. I think California has kind of changed and defined kind of what they see as an independent contractor and are more heavily maybe auditing that if that's the right word. You know, there's a liability if you misclassify someone and the IRS were to come in and say, hey, this person's actually an employee, not an independent contractor, you can go back and have to owe taxes or, you know, they can just kind of give you a slap on the wrist. Who knows, right? But that's an important factor to consider. And I think that if you're a seller and you're going to work back for a couple months, I think the risk is likely probably low if you kind of looked at what your situation is and you analyze that. And even the math of that is probably really doesn't matter. But if you're going to work long-term back for your buyer or one, two, three years, an unknown amount of time, I think that you might see that you might not meet the test 
test of independent contractor. Well, where a lot of the people got their hands slapped on the wrist was, is the actual sellers. Mm-hmm. So the people that are buying our business, you better make sure because there's this 25 rule of test, I believe it is, that has mm-hmm. to be met. So you've got to be able to look that up and be able to see, is the associate in your practice, independent contract, are they meeting those rules? The best example would be is a painter. You hire a painter, what do they do? They show up, they bring the paint buckets, they bring the rollers, they bring everything, they paint the house, and then they leave. It's the same concept with maybe like an oral surgeon that maybe bring in the assistant, maybe they're bringing in the implants, maybe they're bringing in the hand pieces and all the supplies and everything. You have hired them, and then they've come in, they've done the procedure, and then they leave. And so just make sure that you're looking at those rules and the attorney who writes that associate agreement as an independent contractor has experience in that. We can set these up and we will refer you to the attorneys, but there are some rules again that you need to meet. Yep, absolutely. So another thing I want to talk about is I think really important for just the ease of the actual transition and kind of the changing of hands on actual closing day or the day after There are certain things that if you're buying a practice, the first day you see patients, there are critical processes that need to be in place. You need to be able to pay your staff. You need to be able to receive money from your patients and deposit it. And you need to be able to track your production and track your accounting and know where all your money's going on day one. Because if you remember, you're buying a business, you're buying the assets. You're not buying the existing entity. So your accounting software is zero. You're starting a brand new entity on day one. Your production is zero on day one. You're not simply taking over what they have done. So you need to have that set up. We have resources for these things. These are things that if you're a client of ours, you are getting communications about, hey, how are you on this? How is this going? Now, there are steps that have to take place well before you can actually do that. You have to have an entity set up. You have to have an EIN. But those things take place way earlier in the process. Around 30 days before, probably a minimum of 30 days before, you need to have a plan of attack of when these things are going to happen. Now, you cannot transfer over the practice management system until right before the close, right? But you need to know what paperwork does that entail? What do I need to have signed? How long do I need to have that submitted? The best transitions are those that have all those things in place and they know at this point in time, everything's gonna shift over. One of the things that a lot of people don't think about until the end is what accounting software am I gonna use? Am I gonna use QuickBooks? Am I gonna use you know another service? Am I gonna continue to use my local accountant? That's one of the things that we look at in a financial analysis to say, how much are you spending on accounting? Was the owner doing it? Was the spouse doing it? Were they paying a local CPA? Is there an opportunity there to reduce those costs? I know that we at NDP refer a lot of clients over to the Kane Waters accounting team because they have a super cost-effective system. They have their own accounting software that integrates, and it's just we've not found kind of a better financial deal for our existing clients. Same goes with merchant services. That's something that oftentimes people don't understand the difference of that, and so we have resources that can help get those costs in line and really save new owners money that, especially if you're buying a practice that maybe has low profitability, but that accounting service, and I think getting those books in line, being able to track your money, and like we talked about a couple episodes ago, being aware of where it's going, understanding how it flows, working one-on-one with your accounting contact, like all of those things are critical in that relationship. And I know experience from the Cane Water side that that relationship that our buyers experience when they have that relationship is really a big asset. So can I just sum up what you said? I think what you said, Christina, correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) You want to make sure you have a system in place 
to get the money. You want to make sure you have yeah. a system in place to pay the people so you continue to get the money. And you want to have a system in place to where you can see where the money goes. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay. that's what I'm saying. And I can say the number one way to make a bad impression with your staff is to miss a pay period. Oh, yeah. I love or it. Or be late, you yeah. know? We typically, what we'll have is like all these rules when we bring associates in practices one of the responsibilities would be to call in payroll. All it takes is one time in their lifetime to, to forget to make that payroll call in, and it's not happy. Yeah. Have you ever done that NDP? So I have personally not done oh, that. Oh, you're just a perfect. Because no. you call in your own payroll. No, no but listen. Who's auditing this? <laughs> but here's here's what I will say. There has been a time when we had a payroll glitch, okay. and I do believe it was like a few years ago. It was right before July 4th or something, and I got a call from a very sweet employee like, so Christy, um, I'm just saying I haven't got um, a paycheck yet? And I was like, what? <laughs> Flew into like this big panic. So you don't want to be in that position. I can speak from experience. So yes, those things are the things where you will close, but it will be a rocky close and it will be hard and there will be reconciliations. And there's a ton of stuff that needs to be transferred over your janitor, your warranties, your utilities, like sure. all those things need to be transferred over. And it's great if they can happen before close. Yeah, that month after you close, you'll get all of those things and you'll realize there's other services. Legally, you're protected. You, you know, you're not responsible for it or seller. You know, you're going to have to pay for that legally. There's language in your agreements or there should be that talk about your responsibility for those payments. But those can be transferred over later. It's sounds like there's like a checklist for all these things. I think there is. Yes. Well, I think we'll have if you to, go to our website, I think you might be able to find it. might be a checklist one. with mm-hmm. like more than what we're just talking about today yeah. on today's podcast. Sellers okay. resources. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So but there are a few things that will delay your closing. And I think it's really important to talk about these. I mentioned I said top three stop signs in the intro. These are the three things that are out of our control. They will put a halt to your transition and delay your closing and mess up all your beautifully laid plans that you had. So I want to go over those three. And these are not like, oh, you miscommunicated with the seller and now you're mad. Like, I think we've clearly talked about that and we'll continue to talk about that. But these are things that are out of our control and are more operational in nature. So number one thing, the landlord. Mm -hmm. If your seller does not own the building and you have a third-party landlord, we highly recommend starting that communication early, understanding what the language is, and knowing that you have all of those ducks in a row early in the process because the landlord has zero incentive to make your transition work because all they're doing is getting a new tenant who's going to have the same terms and likely the same relationship that they just had with the previous person. So they don't care that your closing isn't going to happen. Most of them don't. Some of them are lovely. Some of them are not. So be aware that a bank will not fund until you have a lease assignment in place and they have all their proper documents and you don't want to be in a position where you close on a practice, even if it's seller financing or something. Do you want to own an asset where you don't actually know you're going to have a space? No. So you want that to be in place at the close. A couple of points there is, is number one is it is a good 30 day process. Like let's don't yeah. like this two weeks. Let's finally make the introduction because this, it, this could easily be 30 to 45 day process. We've had our landlords are they're in the Caribbean. I'm sorry. They're not going to be back for two weeks. Yeah. Stuff like that, that will happen. It will drag on these buy-ins. And so we're looking at the cash flow, saying this associate's making 150 grand they're going to be making 500 grand as an owner. We were leaving money on the table for every week that we're not the owner. The second is you got to understand that from a seller, I got one that we're working with right now that we're engaged in and what they're trying to do is they want to time it. Mm-hmm. So their lease is up, for example, next June. 
So what they want to do is they want to advertise to sell the practice and then they want to sell it next June. So we're going to find a buyer for this practice. By the way, the great, I don't know why we do this more often, but it's an amazing practice in the Washington, D.C. area. And I mean amazing GP practice. So if you're interested in a GP practice or know someone, send us an email because this is a gift from the man upstairs. It is an amazing practice. So we uh, have not formally listed yet, but we will. But the point is for this particular seller, I've got a lease that's going to expire. So I can't just like we work with the buyer and then go to the bank and say, now I have an expired lease. Yep. So we've got to understand, I understand from the seller standpoint, they want to hold on to a 10-year lease, but you know, trying to sell it the last day of the month and, and time it with the practice, I mean, sure, that sounds great, but that's just not realistic. Yeah, and we've had a seller have to delay their closing by six months because they were in a relationship with a month-to-month lease. They had issues getting a full lease. Then, you know, what does that look like? So, I mean, there's a lot of complications there. So just be cognizant that the landlord is not always your friend and should be, but isn't in this process sometimes. Another thing that we see hold up a closing, again, oftentimes because of lending, is the bank's going to have requirements from an insurance perspective of what you need in place at closing. Now, every bank is different as far as what they actually need done by closing. Some need the full policy written and completed. Some need to know you're in underwriting and have got the kind of initial check of approval and some need various limits. So generally what's going to be required, and again, every bank's different, so understand the conditions of your loan, but life, disability, and business overhead insurance are those three main, and overhead insurance is sometimes called other things, but those are the three things you're going to need. And those can take up to eight weeks Mm -hmm. to get done. So you know, if you're trying to push something through in 30, 45 days, know that that's a hurdle you're going to have to cross. And there are times when you're a prepared individual and you have life insurance and you have disability and maybe you have the level that you need. Also be aware that you're assigning that over to a bank. So if personally, right, in your plan and what you need to protect your family and yourself, if you're assigning it all over to the bank and something happens to you, you and your family now don't have any. So if you're going to assign over what you have and you already have the coverages you need, explore getting additional for yourself if that's kind of what you want to do. But just know that if something were to happen to you and you need to use it, it's going to the bank to cover kind of that note and it kind of goes down over time. So one of the things we'll do in our checklist as we're going through and helping you know many of these buyers through this process of becoming an owner, we're getting into this type of information. We know that if the practice loan is going to be $500,000, then we know that the bank requirements for an insurance purpose are going to be much, much less. We know that when bank loans are over a million dollars, that they have different rules. And so then you might need some additional insurance coverages. And now all of a sudden, the insurance, we call the insurance guy or gal, they got to send the nurse, say, over, oh, let's get some blood, let's get that off. And then it's got to do underwriting. And, oh, I forgot I had this little hiccup because... I don't know, this little thing popped up in my last health test or something, and that's just slowing down the process. Mm -hmm. So the key is just for us to try to understand the amount of loan that you're going to need and then to prepare you Mm -hmm. that we might have a little hookup and let's start this process sooner than later. Because like you said, it will hold this process up. Yeah, absolutely. And so the third one, if I have three of unknown kind of hurdles you might cross, the building. So if I'm going to buy a practice and I am also going to buy the real estate at the same time, know that the real estate lending process, and you're likely going to need lending, the lending real estate process has not changed. It is not as quick as the practice acquisition Mm -hmm. process. 
you're going to have to be required 20%, 15% down. The same thing you're going to go through with a house. I've got to get an appraisal. I've got to get inspections. I've got to make title. All of those things happen with the practice real estate. So if someone calls me and says they want to close in a practice in 30 days, I can probably make that happen with the right group of people. If someone tells me they want to close on the practice and the real estate in 30 days, that's probably not going to happen. And some people will just say, hey, we'll close on the practice and close on the real estate as soon as we can. Okay, well, then what that means is now you have to have a lease because the bank's not going to give you money for the practice until they know you have the space. And even if the practice purchase is in process, they're going to need to see you have a lease. So now you have to pay for a lease. Now you have to negotiate a lease. And so in my experience, it oftentimes doesn't make sense to do that short-term lease unless it's going to be longer than you know a few months. It's just going to make sense to delay your close. So just know it's fine if that's what it's going to be, but just know that that's something that you definitely have to take into account from a timeline and just kind of goal perspective. It's like you've done this before. You're so good. You're <laughs> so good. Only a few times. You're only, so good. I've only messed up a couple times. <laughs> and you have to be honest, right? I mean, like, that's, that's why we listen to the podcast, that's right? That's right. We learn. I found a podcast for transition specialists. You did? No. No. But that should exist. <laughs> so that's it for today. We thank you for listening. If you like us, review us. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, review us. Send us a message. We want to know your feedback. We want to know what you like, what you love, and what you don't. So thanks again for everything. Bye. (laughs) See you guys.